0: before the storm. So we've been shown the opening of six of the seven seals and we've been looking at those and uh, as we said they are, they are not uh, something that's going to happen in chronological order just before Christ returns. Uh, they're very much what's been happening ever since Christ ascended into heaven uh, until now in every generation, in every land, this earthquake, uh, these natural disasters, these various things but then as we come up to number 6 of course we come very close to the return of Christ and we saw the, uh, those outside of Christ crying on the mountains and the rocks to fall on them and bury them and then in chapter 7 we saw how uh, before that happens, before Christ actually uh, makes war on his enemies he first gathers all the elect and puts them in a safe place and, uh, and now we come to the opening of the seventh and the last seal. And I suggest to you that as we come to it, we come to it with um, expectations. Each seal that's been opened so far, a horse has come out with a rider on, and they've come on a mission. And uh, they've got worse, progressively worse and worse. And the last one, of course, seal six, uh, is Christ coming out to make war on his enemies. And you think, what on earth is seal number seven going to bring with it? And as we go into chapter eight, we find out nothing. Absolute silence. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about an hour, for about half an hour. What does it mean? Not surprisingly, there are lots of suggestions. Um, It's amazing, you know, you get anybody to. Uh, suggest what they think is about anyone who studies scripture and that they'll have ideas and and there are many many ideas as to what this is about I suggest to you that perhaps the simplest and most probable answer is just this that we've just been shown the most horrific seal being open that we can imagine the sixth seal is open and so horrific is the sight of Christ coming that the, those outside of Christ are pleading with the mountains to fall on them and bury them the mountains are collapsing the whole of the earth is coming to an end and they're screaming out who can save us and then God opens the seventh seal Christ opens the seventh seal and there's silence it's all been done there's nothing left to be done all of God's plans all of God's purposes everything right from uh, when he first creates the world through redemptive history is now complete we've seen the the martyrs the souls of the martyrs crying out how long before you avenge our blood well their blood is now about to be avenged the church has been crying out for your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven his kingdom is now coming on earth as it is in heaven they've been crying out for the return of Christ Christ is now returning everything that God has been promising everything that he's been working for is now happening and so there's just silence it's finished the work is complete just as when Christ was on the cross and he goes through all of that suffering and all of that agony to redeem us to save us and when it is complete what do we read he cries out it is finished and there's silence he hasn't got another word to say he hasn't got another action to perform he's done it all and that's the picture here the work is complete I suggest to you there's probably a second significance to it as well. Silence speaks of there not being any criticism to voice, of any objection to raise. Um, one of the privileges, responsibilities of being a pastor, of course, is to conduct weddings. And I, I, as far as I know, every pastor goes through the same thoughts before they ever perform the first one that they do and that is what happens when you ask the question, "Has anyone know of any lawful reason why these two may not be joined together in marriage? And you just dread someone speaking. And I think every pastor does the same thing. You first make sure that you understand what are the valid reasons why someone can object because there are some. Uh, it goes back into ancient history in Britain as to why that line's there and Uh, The doors have to be unlocked on the church at the moment that that question is asked. The idea is that anyone can come in at that moment and say, I I know of a reason. And of course it goes back to the days when there weren't uh, national records and everything else of marriages. And someone might be married in one village and then fancy someone in a few villages away and go over there and marry them. And someone can come in and stand up and say, he's already married. Well, that would be one valid objection might be under a, a false name that he's trying to do it, that would be a valid objection they might be underage without the parental consent, that would be an objection It might not be in their right mind, that would be a valid objection and you sort of go through all these thoughts and what you're going to do if someone does stand up and I think most pastors have the same idea that you would take the couple and that person out the back and have the organist play some music to sort of uh, keep everybody quiet while you do it and you go out the back and say, no, what's this objection and you try to to get to the bottom, whether it's a valid one or not. And then you actually do the wedding. And you get to that point and you say, if anyone has got an objection, let them now speak or forever hold their peace. And then you have to pause. And you have this lovely silence. Because nobody's got an objection to make. And that's how it is here. God has separated everybody into two camps. There are those who are in Christ who are now safe, who are now in a place of protection and there are those who are crying out for the mountains to fall on them and bury them. And it's as if if God says, right, here's your moment. Has anybody got an objection to this? Has anybody got something to say? Can anybody justify why they should be in the other camp than the one they're in? And there's silence. And it's not just a moment's silence. It goes on and on and on for half an hour. Because there is not a word that anyone can say against what God is doing. His very enemies can only see that what he is doing is just and right. So having seen the opening of the seals how our generation is not unique but this happens in every generation we have wars and rumours of wars we have earthquakes we have economic disasters we have death we have martyrdom and this irresistible penetration of the gospel into every nation this first seal that was opened we're now about to take a second view of it all Um, anybody who's done bible study understands the idea of parallelisms in scripture there's loads and loads of them and classic structures this this where where an idea or a pattern is repeated and we're just about to sort of do a second pass in it. We've had seven seals, now we're going to have seven trumpets. But before we do, there are three verses in between. It's as though God says, okay, now we've just seen all of history once over. Now we're going to take a look at it again from a second angle once over. But before we do, I just want you to see what is sandwiched right in the middle of all that's happening in this world. Three verses. Verses three to five. And it's the prayers of the saints. Isn't that amazing? Now, of course, when Scripture talks to the saints, it doesn't mean a select few who the church in their stupidity have uh, decided are sort of above normal human standards and have decided to call them saints. He's talking about believers. These are the prayers of you and I. These are the prayers of those who've been saved down through history. And in our generation, we're on the platform, we're on the stage, we're the actors, and we're the ones who are praying. I just want us to see two things as we look at those three verses there. Perhaps it would be good just to read them again. Uh, First of all, verse 3 and 4. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer. And he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. First thing I want you to see is that they are precious to God. Isn't that amazing? Our prayers are precious to God. That they ascend before him. The, the picture here is that they've been put on the altar. It's, it's Old Testament imagery. It's like, you know, in the, in the temple they had these various altars. And it's not clear which altar. I don't think it's particularly identifying with any one of them. But it's as though one of those altars, our prayers are being put on them. So that they're being offered up as a, as a sacrifice, a fragrant aroma to God. And they're precious in his sight. You might say, I just find that so hard to believe. You know, that, that God actually sees my prayers as precious. Well, of course, he doesn't see all prayers as precious. I mean, those prayers that are wrong prayers, he doesn't see as precious. You know, when you, some people, when you hear them pray, they're not doing anything really other than telling God what he already knows. You know, it's like God's ignorance and they... They've got to pray to inform him of everything. Well, there's nothing precious to God about that. He already knows it. Well, there's people who pray because they want to tell everybody else something. You know, sort of like the Pharisee who, who stands there saying, God, I thank you that I'm not like all these other people around me. You know, they're not praying to God at all. They're preaching to everybody else. I mean, God doesn't find that precious. It's just an abuse of prayer. But when the child of God pours out his heart to God, when the child of God is praying for the return of Christ... For for the, the 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 end of martyrdom, for, for the persecuted church, for Christ's return, for for the penetration of the gospel into other nations, for the missionaries we support overseas. For in the child of God's praying that they'd be more holy, more like Christ, that they'd enjoy and delight in God more. God finds that precious. It's pleasing to him. When we pray and we show that we are totally dependent upon him. It's a great thing to get down on our knees and put ourselves in a position where we're saying to God, God, I need you. I can't do anything without you. I, I can't I can't progress in, in becoming more like Christ without you. I can't talk to anybody about Christ without you. I, I can't, Pray without you. I, I can't I can't grow without you. Father, I just need you in every way. That that exalts God. And God finds that precious in his sight. They're on a golden altar before the throne. Do you realize that? When you're in the quietness of your home or in your car. Or in the business of that office. Where suddenly you're called into the boss. And you've just got a moment to pray. That prayer is on the altar. Before the throne of God in heaven. And God says it's precious to me. That it should be there. And notice verse 3. It's the prayers of all the saints. All the saints on the golden altar. Before the throne. It's not the most spiritual of the christians it's not the full time workers amongst the christians it's it's not those who have got some qualification it's all the saints prayers without exception my friend that's how god sees your prayers the second thing i want us to see in these verses is this our prayers are effective in christ now how do I see that, it's verse 5 because what do we read these prayers are laid on this altar before God and they're there precious to him before his throne and then what do we read verse 5 the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth and there were pills of thunder, rumblings, flashings of lightning and an earthquake So, so the angel takes the censer and what does he do he fills it with fire from the altar he takes, as it were, the the offering of the prayers of the saints, puts that into his censer and casts it down on the earth, and all of these things happen. This is God answering the prayers that have ascended to His throne. Now, how do they become so effective that God responds like that to them? Well, the answer's there in verse three and four, isn't it? He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints. Verse 4, the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints. What's that telling us? It's telling us that our prayers do not arrive at the throne as they leave our lips. Isn't that wonderful? I don't know about you, but when I pray so often, I just feel, Lord, I just just wish I could say what I want to say. You know, I, I, I wish my mind would... would would have the sort of comprehension that I want to express I wish I had the vocabulary, I I wish I had the heart Lord I, I, I know how I want to be able to pray and I just can't do it well my prayers don't arrive at his throne like that do you ever feel like that? I take comfort in the fact that Paul did the great missionary Paul, the great apostle, the great author of most of the new testament he felt exactly like that this is what he writes in romans eight twenty six: likewise the spirit helps us in our weakness for we do not know what to pray for as we ought isn't that amazing paul says we don't we don't know what to pray for as we should do really don't but the spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words And he who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. He says, When I come to pray, it's not just me saying words. He says, Holy Spirit directs my thoughts, Holy Spirit shapes what I'm praying. And then you go a few verses further in Romans 8 down to verse 34, and he says, Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? So he says, when I come to pray, what I've got to understand is that Holy Spirit's involved. He's he's shaping my thoughts, he's shaping my heart, he's groaning in my prayers in ways that I can't express, and Jesus is joining in. He's at the Father's right hand, and he's interceding for us. And so, what does he see in this image? it's not just the prayers but it's the prayers accompanied by this incense ascending to the throne and it's that that makes them so effective It's, it's not it's not the power of my words it's not the skill of my expressing prayer it's the fact that I'm praying from my heart and the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ are making them pleasing and acceptable to God and his purposes It's an amazing picture, isn't it? So we've got the seals. We've got this look through history up until the return of Christ. We're about to get the trumpets. Again, we're looking through history up to the return of Christ. And sandwiched there in the middle, we've got our prayers. And it's as though God's saying, look, I know what I'm doing. I've got it all planned out. Nothing's going to change. It's all purpose. It's all set. It's all there from eternity past to eternity future. But you know what? I've given you a really important part to play in it. Your prayers are part of me working my good purposes out in this world. My desire is that you should be involved, that you should be praying, that you should be interceding. And as I hear your prayers, my response is that I will do what I'm going to do. And I will make these things happen for which you're praying. As Holy Spirit prompts you in your prayers. that doesn't mean we're telling God anything it doesn't mean that we're enabling God in any way it just means that God's given us the privilege of being part of what he's doing in this world isn't that amazing that when I am prompted to pray for one of our missionaries out in Malawi or uh, Suva in India or Dan and Rachel in Papua New Guinea when, when, when I feel prompted to pray for them and I'm praying for them God's saying that's what I want Now I'm going to use that in answering your prayer in the way that I've deemed best to bless them in that place. And and I'm involving you in it. I'm I'm using you in it. You've got that privilege. And when you're praying for Steve as he's preparing for next Sunday morning and Paul as he's preparing for next Sunday night, God says, that's what I want. That's precious to me that you're praying for these men. And And I will answer those prayers as I do in them that which I purpose to do. But these prayers here are those prayers that we're praying concerning this world in which we live and the glorious return of Jesus Christ and Christ's vindication and Christ's glory and the the end of the persecution of the church and the ushering in of the new heavens and the new earth. And the way they're answered, verse 5, is this. Pills of thunder, rumblings, flashings of lightning and earthquakes. Which I guess begs the question, when did you last pray for pills of thunder, rumblings, flashings of lightning and an earthquake? I, I mean, I've never done that. Have you? Of course not. So how are they the response? How are they the answers to the prayers we've been praying? Well, surely you have prayed and you do pray. Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And this is the things that are going to happen to bring that about. Surely you do pray for the deliverance of the persecuted church. And the church is going to be delivered from that persecution by the return of Jesus Christ to make war on those who are attacking his church. Surely you do pray for God's name to be honoured, for Christ's calls to be vindicated. And that will be answered by God returning in dramatic, powerful way. You do pray for men and women to realise their sin and their need of being right before a holy God and God uses these natural events to wake people up. That's what they're there for and that's what we're going to see later in the book of Revelation. That God says, even though I've done these things, still they will not worship me. When an earthquake occurs, it's a great big warning from God saying, look what I can do. Fall down on your knees and worship me before I do it on a far greater scale. So let's look at these trumpet blasts of heaven. Just in the few minutes that we've got left, we'll look at these. They're just the first uh, four of them. And then you're going to have to wait eight weeks to get the last three of them, God willing. But uh, as with the seals, I really believe these aren't things that are just going to happen right at the end. Some people interpret them that way. They see these as being things that are going to happen right at the end, the last few, few weeks before Christ's return. The danger with that, one of the big dangers with that, is you then reason, well, Christ can't return yet because these things aren't happening as they're being described here. You know, we're not seeing these things in any literal sense happening. And if, if that is your understanding of it, that these are literal events that are going to happen, then your conclusion is, well, Christ can't return yet. So where's the urgency? Well, Scripture over and again insists that Christ can return. We're supposed to live in the imminence of Christ's return. No, I think the way we're supposed to see these are again all that's happening through history from Christ being here on earth to Christ returning to earth, but with an ever increasing frequency and degree when we get close to Christ's return. So here's trumpet number one the burning of planet earth, verse 7. First angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood and these were thrown upon the earth and a third of the earth was burned up and a third of the trees were burned up and all green grass was burned this third that occurs over and over again in here I mean the meaning of it is simply this that it's it's a significant proportion it's not all of it it's just damage, widespread damage on a global scale to much of it and the first we see is the damage to planet earth itself my friends as Christians we're not supposed to be indifferent to this world in which we live, this physical world. It's a God-given gift. He made it as a, a, a love gift for us. He, he, he's, when he made it, he said, it is good, it is very good. And look at the way we've damaged it and are destroying it. Every year we read of totally out of control fires that have started in some part of this world. It's It's been burnt up. The devastation of forest. Rainforests once covered 14% of the earth's surface. They now cover 6%. And could be down to 0% in the next 30 years. They've been destroyed at a rate of 80 acres a minute. Day in, night in, night out, day out. During nineteen eighties, sixteen point nine million hectares of tropical rainforests were destroyed. And that's the picture we've got here under this first trumpet. Man is destroying the land by fire, by devastation, by greed. But God is in control of it. And God is using it to warn humanity. This can't go on indefinitely. Trumpet 2. Disasters at sea. Second angel blew his trumpet and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea and a third of the sea became blood, a third of the living creatures in the sea died and a third of the ships were destroyed. It's widespread destruction of the sea. It's not only the land, it's the, the seas as well. Now, this is very much natural disaster, and also man dis- calls disaster. But again, what we're seeing here is that God is over it. God is using it for his purposes. And God is using it as a warning. God is saying, Look, I am acting against this world as it is at the moment. I'm not going to leave it forever. The sea is polluted, it's turned into blood. Whether that's contamination from oil, which we've seen in many places, the dumping of waste, the result of volcanic lava running into the sea, which certainly would be red. Whether it's the effect of the melting of the polar caps and the increased temperature in the seas. It's escalating every year. Our seas are being destroyed. And with that comes death death to the living creatures of the sea one fifth of the world's coral reefs have been destroyed and a further half damaged blue whales now number some 3,500 worldwide a tenth of the number killed in a single year in 1931 in one year back in the 30s they killed more than 10 times the number that remain alive today Between 1910 and 1969, two million were killed. Fish, whales, dolphins, birds of the sea killed through pollution, sport, nothing to do with man's need of food. And God says that's the second trumpet blast. And then we come to trumpet three polluted rivers and lakes. Verse 10 and 11, the third angel blew his trumpet and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch. And it fell on the third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood. And many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. It's not only the seas that have been destroyed, it's the rivers and the lakes. Isn't it tragic that in the 21st century... There are thousands of people who are dying because they're drinking polluted water. Water that's been polluted by man. Water that's been polluted by our mistreatment of rivers and lakes. We use them as our toilets, we use them as our waste disposal systems, we use them to dump chemicals in, we just abuse them. But God is over that and God says, I'm using that again to warm planet earth. You are destroying the world that I made. And then we see trumpet four. Instability in the heavens. The fourth angel blew his trumpet. And a third of the sun was struck and a third of the moon and a third of the stars so that a third of their lights might be darkened and a third of the day may be kept from shining and likewise a third of the night. Not even the heavens fail to speak of God's judgment on this earth. <coughs> Stars burn out, the sun is winding down, we're getting increasing solar flares, meteorites falling to the earth, constant reminders that this world is passing away it is not going to stand forever it's going and God gives us this to warn us and to warn the world and what does the world in its arrogance and wisdom do it looks at these things and you get these great brains like Stephen Hawkins, supposed to be the greatest brain since Einstein and he sees this in the heavens and what is his conclusion we need to leave earth within the next was it 100 years within the next 100 years humanity needs to have moved to another planet otherwise we're going to become extinct that's not what it's warning us it's warning us we need to get down on our knees and worship God or we'll become extinct or worse than extinct we're cast into hell my friend if that seems bad enough look how the chapter closes and for that we'll have to wait some weeks I looked and heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. In other words, if you think this is bad, wait until you see what's coming. Burning of planet earth, disasters at sea, polluted rivers and lakes, cosmic instability, and that's only the start so how are we supposed to respond to this well if we're a Christian surely the first thing is this that we use prayer well our prayers are vital in all of this when we see all this happening around us we're, we're the saints who should be down on our knees praying Lord Jesus come you know, you know Lord as, as you're dealing with this world as as, as these things are happening that speak of Christ's return, as, as your judgment is being revealed against mankind, Father, we're pleading for the gospel as it goes into Papua New Guinea. And, and, and there's Suva Thamma standing up preaching it in India to the ladies there. And, and we're, we, we're pleading with God and we're praising God. We use prayer well. Second thing is this we don't fear the future. You know, this, 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 our generation seems to be preoccupied with how this world's going to end. Global warming. You know, I mean, global warming is one of the biggest issues on the agenda of most international things these days, isn't it? How are we going to deal with global warming? I remember hearing, um, he's a bishop in Australia, in the Anglican Church in Australia, and he was speaking at uh, one of the conferences, and he'd just come from the Synod meetings in uh, Australia and he said you wouldn't believe it just about every talk that someone got up to give was on global warming and how the church should be responding to global warming he said i was dying just to get up and say if you think this is hot you haven't felt anything yet you wait till jesus christ returns he said that's supposed to be our agenda not global warming my friends we're not we're not supposed to panic about the future as christians We know how it's going to end and it will not end through global warming and it will not end through another ice age and it will not end through North Korea destroying the earth and it will not end through meteorite attack, anything else. It will end through Jesus Christ returning in glory, gathering the elect to himself, casting the Christ redactors into hell and God will just melt it down and create a new heavens and new earth in which dwells righteousness. So we pray and we live our lives with confidence that God is in control over all that we see happening God is over it and we use the time well because the clock is ticking on planet earth really is ticking and as we look at all these things escalating who knows how much is going to happen in our lifetimes yet the way things are happening the clock's ticking on Christ's return and much of the world has still never heard the name of Jesus let alone how to be saved if you're not a Christian then there's only one message isn't there here all that we see happening is God's warning to us that he will not tolerate this forever and every time there's a little earthquake every time another river gets polluted, every time some disaster happens at sea God's saying wake up this is a prelude to my judgment, a prelude to my wrath being poured out We're going to sing number 664.